before we get this episode started, we need to thank our wonderful sponsors. That are sponsors, especially our three annual sponsors, David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, and Campbell University Divinity School. This podcast wouldn't happen. So here's where you come in. Take a few minutes to go to each of their websites and check what they have to offer. Or if you really want to take it to the next level, be sure to tweet about this episode and thank our sponsors. This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Our guest for this week's podcast is Michael Ware, former advisor to Barack Obama during his time in the White House. This recording actually took place live on the podcast stage this summer at General Assembly. Over the next couple of weeks, you'll also hear interviews with theologians, church historians, and various leaders from across the fellowship. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast interview is brought to you by Fuller Seminary. Build your own learning pathway with Fuller's flexible six-course certificate of Christian studies. Choose courses that fit your needs in each area, such as recovering ministry or pastoral care and abuse, Study without leaving your ministry context or committing to a long-term degree program. Plus, begin in 2018 and automatically receive the Grace Fuller Scholarship, which reduces the price of tuition by one-third. Visit fuller.edu backslash Grace Fuller Scholarship for more information. Well, for those that are joining us on Facebook Live and those that are gathered here in the gathering place and for those that will hear this later in the episode, our guest is Michael Ware. He's the founder of Public Square Strategies, a consulting firm that helps businesses, nonprofits, foundations, and Christian organizations at the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. Michael directed the faith outreach for President Obama's historic 2012 re-election campaign and was the youngest White House staffer in modern American history. In the White House, Michael led evangelical outreach, helping manage the White House engagement on religions and, and val- religious and values of issues. This includes adoption and anti-human trafficking efforts. He holds an honorary position at the University of Birmingham's Edward Cadbury Center for Public Understanding of Religion. He also serves on the National Board of Bethany Christian Services. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Ware. Good to be here. Michael, in your workshop today, uh, you had a very fascinating quote. You said, uh, politics are guided and driven by our emotions. I wonder if you might share with us, uh, how have you seen this fact at its worst? <laughs> well, I think we see that right now, right? <laughs> um, I, I mean, it's, uh, it's ever-present. And this, this idea that um, 
Well, the reason I like to say that is because it zeroes in on the fact that politicians are responding to the incentives and the desire that the people place into it. Um, that, yes, politicians are um, doing things to manipulate our emotions, but that's only because we're making our emotions available for their use. Uh, and so, you know, I think we see this you know, the major way it expresses itself is in people who are distracted from the uh, concrete policy outcomes of political decisions with sort of pop culture and with sort of uh, emotional appeals from politicians that are separate from uh, the actual work of politics. And, and that's, that's something that obviously harms, uh, harms our country. All right. Uh, so instead of working out of scarcity, let's maybe move back to uh, an abundance that, that's, uh, a good, that's a good <laughs> lesson. Yeah. How have you, have you seen this fact uh, lead to positive change, that, that politics can guide and drive our emotions? Huh. Yeah, so uh, w when I say that, I'm usually thinking in the negative sense. You know, I, I think what we have seen um, is a, uh, because of the political times that we're in, we're seeing a really incredible rise in civic engagement. Um, I think people are being led to politics just out of an emotional reaction, but quickly are uh, learning that they need to do some research and bone up on, uh, on policy decisions and do some active engagement with lawmakers and with advocacy groups instead of just, you know, tweeting and, and uh, feeling emotional about politics. And so, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the exact quote, but Dallas Willard says something along the lines of, um, uh, feel, uh, feelings uh, make make a, a good guide, but an awful master, or something uh, something along those lines. And, and you know, if if our emotions can guide us to deeper, more serious political engagement, uh, that's a good thing. It's when our emotions actually take us away from that into a more sort of um, uh, a tribalistic form of politics that that, uh, that that we need to have some checks in place. Uh, President Obama uh, said, my Christian faith has been a, s a sustaining force for me over these last few years. All the more so when Michelle and I hear our faith question from time to time, we are reminded that ultimately what matters is not what other people say, but whether we are being true to our conscience and true to our God. I would say historically speaking, I don't think there's been another president mm. whose religious practices have ever been more vehemently questioned and slandered. As someone who served in his White House, why do you think that was the case for President Obama? It was a number of things. You know, he had a um, unique background, uh, not just in terms of his race, but in terms of his his travels, in terms of um, uh, in terms of his parents' religious background, and so you know, I think that there were some uh, just just who he was played into that. Uh, both in a like a rational sense that uh, he grew up in a non-religious home, and so you know that that makes some some sense that people would make some inferences there. Uh, then I also want to want to. Um, I think it's clear that ideas about race played a significant role, and I think uh, uh, a cultural discrediting of African American faith that we see uh, not just from racist but from liberals from the media sort of um, tokenization of, of black faith the trivialization of it um, and, and then I, I talk in my book a little bit about um, some of the rational 
more rational groundings or serious groundings for why people um, the president did not choose a, a home church when he was in D.C. Uh, now there were a lot of like political advisors who were telling us, well, you know, you'd really solve the problem if you just pick a home church. And what I describe in my book is the fact that when the president attends church, it, it's not just the president attending church; it's the entire institution of the presidency. So I'll give you a quick example of this um, during the transition before the inaugural, so December of 2008. Um, the president visited a historically black uh, a church in D.C., 19th Street Baptist Church. And uh, 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 we need to, Secret Service has to go to churches weeks in advance to make sure that they know how they'll enter, how they'll leave, what the security protocol is, all the stuff, uh, how they're going to set up the magnetometers on the way out. And so the churches themselves know the president's coming in advance. Um, the word leaked out the night before the president, uh, so on Saturday night, it was in the Washington Post. I arrive at the church at, you know, five in the morning on Sunday. And uh, this is, a, again, a historically black uh, church and uh, a sea waiting to get through security clearances like, you know, uh, white guys in the Hawaiian shirts yeah. and khakis, <laughs> and, you know, clearly not, you know, uh, typical attendees of this church. Well, well, the church's actual congregants were displaced. There was no room for them. And so, uh, and so uh, I, I, I talk in the book pretty extensively about, uh, about that idea of what it takes for the president to, um, to, to go to church and, and how that not only, um, primarily how that can be disruptive to the church body. So there are a whole range of reasons. And then the last thing I'd say is we've seen in this country a conflation of religion with partisan politics. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, it, it's, uh, it's been, um, you know, uh, uh, President Obama was not the first politician to be accused of, uh, you know, not, not being a Christian or that kind of thing. Um, and the way that party politics plays into that is, is, uh, is pretty significant. Yeah, I mean, if you just think about the president coming to church, I mean, it's pretty stressful just for the sake of communion. It's it's not just the president receiving communion. we got the full secret service, and those yeah, those, yeah. those guys can eat a lot of food. So yeah, that's a lot, that's that's right. a lot of body of Christ that's to right. pass around. Yeah, so. that is, yeah. Okay, a so bread shortage. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I'll just call a spade a spade. Uh, president Obama's faith was so vehemently questioned Yet we didn't have in President Obama uh, an affair with a porn star. We have That's that true. with our current administration. So why do you think this huh. this <laughs> this tone of questioning uh, the president's faith hasn't carried over into the current commander in chief? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, so part of it, right, is that um, people who Generally, people who tend to take that kind of thing seriously um, uh, and have the loudest voices tend to be on the tend to be on the right. On the left, folks are generally more ecumenical, more come as you are, that kind of thing. And so, there are other lines of critique against Trump that are coming from the left than you know he's not really a Christian. Although we're starting to see, if you followed the news in the last 24 hours, 48 hours, there were even starting to see that. Uh, I'd go back to the conflation of religion with politics. So a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the folks who would typically be making those critiques, for instance, of President Obama are satisfied with this president's policies and so don't 
uh, it's not as big of a question for them anymore. Uh, I remember um, it, it used to be a major uh, it used to be a major knock against Democrats that they would say things like, you know, I'm not running to be uh, you know pastor of the country. I'm running to be president or I'm running to be senator. Uh, and then all of a sudden, with, with our current president, all of a sudden you had religious right leaders saying, well, you know, he's, he, he may not be the most moral guy, but he's running to be president, not, not pastor. It's like, isn't that interesting how that, how that flipped? I mean, we've seen, again, to go back to the first question, the way that uh, emotion and tribal loyalties um, can lead to uh, just a collapse of principle. Well, why isn't the thing that was the truth, the thing that was most important five minutes ago, important now? So um, in the aftermath of, of the Parkland shooting and, and the Me Too movement, we're seeing this ground-swelling mobilization of progressive change. And it's, it's very clear, uh, both in the gun control and sexual assault conversation, that change is happening. Um, you were part of a grassroots movement with, um, the, with the president's election. Um, what would you say makes grassroots movements so successful? And what are some pitfalls they should avoid? Well, um, no matter how complex politics gets, no matter how sophisticated the technology becomes, no matter how dysfunctional campaign financing is, you know, down the line, uh, what will always matter in politics, especially in politics that is uh, representative and democratic and ultimately accountable to the people, is when you're able to mobilize people and and show uh, 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 that they care about something. Politicians are always going to be responsive to that. Maybe not respond as quickly as we'd like or just in the way we'd like. But if you're able to, uh, if you're able to inject yourself into the line of vision of a politician, um, they're going to be that they have to for survival be responsive to those concerns. And so these grassroots movements are are doing just that. They're sort of impeding on the normal course of our conversation to put new issues uh, into, into discussion. And I think we're gonna continue to see the impact of that. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, elections are, um, are, are, are a time when the truth comes out about the state of our politics and, and uh, we'll see uh, I think the impact of some of these grassroots movements, the closer we get to midterm elections. Yeah, as long as they're not in states where there's gerrymandering taking place, <laughs> which is the case for a lot of states, <laughs> including the state I just moved away from. But, um, you know, I would say that a lot of people would say the sexual assault and gun controls are uh, political discourse. But I would say those are theological conversations mm -hmm. the church should be having. So... In, in your opinion, should the church be a part of those movements? And if so, how can the church appropriately be a part of those movements? Well, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know if, uh, if I'd state it as, you know, the church should be involved in these movements. I, I, I do think the church has, a, has a, a role to play and wisdom to give in both conversations. I think the church has a role to play um, in a conversation like, gun rights conversation that seems to be dominated by uh, a sense of insecurity uh, a sense of um, a sense of fear I think the church has a lot to offer there I think when it comes to the, the uh, Me Too movement and sexual harassment when it comes to uh, uh, 
respect for human dignity uh, when it comes to the respect of the person. The church has a lot to contribute there. So absolutely, the church should be doing internal work on these issues. And the church has a, has a message that's relevant to the world. The, the, the church's wisdom is not just for the church. Um, uh, we have something to contribute to uh, public discussions, and we should, we should be doing that. Now, now the way that that happens, um, there are a range of options for different churches and different cultures with different callings. Um, but it can be everything from just making sure that you're incorporating these topics into, uh, into you know, Wednesday gatherings, midweek gatherings at the church, making sure that you're using your church building as a, as a place that can be a public forum for public conversations on issues of the day uh, to sometimes using the Sunday pulpit is, is, a, is a, a wise thing to do. Uh, equipping people in your church to be advocates from a Christian perspective. I'm seeing churches do that. I know the CBF is involved in doing that. Uh, and, and then, you know, there, there are roles for churches to come alongside of advocacy organizations that are doing this work as well. Well, certainly if the lectionary text sits on David and Bathsheba, you've got a prop to do uh, the sexual assault conversation. Yeah, I think so. Uh, so for those joining on, on Facebook, uh, we are having a conversation with Michael Ware, uh, the author of Reclaiming Hope and former White House advisor. Um, this podcast conversation is brought to you by Fuller Seminary. Build your own learning pathway with Fuller's flexible six-course certificate of Christian studies. Choose courses that fit your needs in such areas as recovering ministry or pastoral care and abuse. Study without leaving your ministry context or committing to a long-term degree program. Plus, begin in 2018 and automatically receive the Grace Fuller Scholarship, which reduces price of tuition by one-third. Visit fuller.edu backslash Grace Fuller Scholarship for more information. Let's talk about the uh, Affordable Health Care Act. Um, I know this topic is near and dear to a lot of ministers in this space because a good chunk of those that are receiving the Affordable uh, Health Care Act are, are clergy. Um, so... Do you believe that um, the AHCA should be an essential uh, concern for Christians in America? And if so, why? Yeah, well, I think health care should be of central concern because health care touches the most intimate aspects of our lives and our families and our communities. And so, uh, you know, it's always interesting to me. Um, I think one of the reasons why clergy are more sensitive to topics like this than often lay people is it's clergy that have... Uh, people coming to them wondering, I just got diagnosed with something, but I, I don't have access to health care. What am I going to do? Uh, same thing with, um, you know, issues like food stamps. It's, it's pastors that are often on the front lines of dealing with um, what happens when, uh, when the system is not working. And so, yeah, I think it's an important issue uh, for, for the church, for Christians. I was um, really encouraged to uh, be a part of um, helping to organize and mobilize faith communities to speak out for a greater access to health care uh, for the good of their neighbors. Yeah. So uh, if, if churches, uh, you know, because this is, a, a for a lot of people, it's a political conversation, so if you'll split over um, support of and against, obviously because we have uh, one side of the government that is currently trying to, at their best, dismantle um, <laughs> this piece of legislature that provides healthcare for, for millions of people. So how can the church get involved in this conversation in a healthy way, knowing that it's divisive even within their own local church? 
Well, look, it, you know, a part of it is about dealing with the concrete issues that are right in front of us right now. So not fighting the battles that have passed. Right now, there are concrete conversations about, for instance, what does it mean to, for, for states to forego Medicaid funding? And it means that uh, thousands, in some cases, millions of poor people will go without the health care they need. Now, that doesn't require talking about the, old, the whole structure of our health care and uh, why we wish things were different and uh, the ACA shouldn't have been passed that way. That has to do with, w with what's in front of us now and dealing with the people who are affected by our politics, not just thinking of politics in this sort of ethereal, purely ideological way. Our, our decisions have consequences. Uh, John, John Kasich got in a lot of trouble during the presidential uh, campaign for saying, you know, that the reason he expended, uh, John Kasich's a Republican governor of Ohio, he said the reason uh, he expanded Medicaid is uh, uh, because of his Christian call to care for the poor. He said, one day I'm going to be accountable for the decisions I make, uh, and I didn't want to have to answer for why I rejected money that would help provide health care to thousands of my constituents that I'm responsible for. Uh, and so, it, you know, I, it, it's people often want to drag you to the the most controversial, the most sort of thematic, but, but you just have to ask people, if we don't do this, what will the consequences be? If we do do it, what will the consequences be? And, and where does our faith call us to in this situation? Well, history repeats itself. Isaiah 1, we see God calling out the his chosen people, and it's not a matter of if they're presenting enough offerings and tithings, it's the fact that they're not seeking justice. They're taking advantage of the poor. They're not looking after the case of the widow. And it's a call for them to wash themselves, to cleanse themselves uh, of this unhealthy way of living and viewing others and an invitation into uh, a radical compassion for those that are in need. Um, there's an aspect of uh, the ACA that sometimes can be uncomfortable for, for churches to talk about. And um, in 2014, the Supreme Court uh, ruled in favor of Hobby Lobby in this landmark Burwell versus Hobby Lobby case. And the Supreme Court ruled that the family-owned religious organization cannot be required to pay for contraceptive coverage for their female workers because it violates the religious liberty of the organization. And the court case raised a debate of, of, of pro-life. And for progressive Christians, there was a cry for a, a comprehensive perspective of pro-life from, from Hobby Lobby. So, for example... Many, organization, uh, many of the organization's products are made in third world countries uh, without fair trade practices. So it's kind of hard to say the organization is pro-life when they don't care about the young children that are making their products for probably a nickel a day overseas. So with the passing of uh, the ACA, this pro-life conversation was elevated. And in your experience, um, why, why is abortion a single issue to pro-lifers instead of this comprehensive issue of seeing pro-life in that way yeah well you, you know and uh you know I, I differ with some folks on this you, you know, words have to mean something and so often this is about semantics i mean pro-life in the political conversation it can mean a whole range of things and i'm a whole life democrat uh i, I believe in pro-life from the womb to the tomb uh but uh the phrase pro-life is is uh historically and in reality linked to abortion. So I'm not one of those people who thinks um, that pro-life just 
can mean whatever you whatever you want it to mean in the in the conversation. I, I do think that there's a uh, it, there's a conversation to be had about what leads best to pro life outcomes. I think there's a conversation to be had about um, uh, uh, what your goals are if you say that you're uh, a pro life. Um, uh, the abortion rate reached its lowest rate since Roe v. Wade under President Obama. For the year he left office, the abortion rate was the lowest it's ever been since Roe v. Wade. I think that should be something we should be talking about in conversations about uh, a pro-life issue. But I also want to um, also want to, uh, you know, the the labor policies of uh, of uh, a company or sort of uh, it's often it can be a, a a tactic to not talk about the issue that's on the table. And in, in Hobby Lobby, the the issue was they had a they had a concrete policy. Whether it was whether it was. Uh, held with integrity with everything that their company did. That's one thing. But uh, at Hobby Lobby, there was a specific issue on the table. Yeah. Well, it's hard. I mean, I, th- I think it can be, uh, I equally think it can be distracting to, to say, hey, you know, we're, we're really talking about this. Don't, you know, don't, let's not talk about this over here. But, you know, the, the hard thing about the pro-life conversation is, is people will cast their votes based on their perspective of that singular uh, abortion issue. Mm-hmm. Um, when oftentimes they are not casting a vote towards uh, a politician who's going to try to pass policies that lead to um, uh, anti-human trafficking uh, policies that are going to lead to immigration reform, that are going to lead to those types of things. So uh, it seems to continue to be an issue for evangelical voters. So what do you think it will take for the conversation to expand away from this single issue and, and allow people to, to look across the aisle for advocacy and, and other important areas? Yeah, well, you know, th- again, there's a lot going on here. I think for some people, this issue is um, an easy way to clarify what's a very complex sort of political marketplace. And so for some people, it's kind of um, uh helps them ha- have a really simple and clear view of our politics. I think what'll help is, you know, the Democratic Party for a period of time had started to explicitly talk about how policies to support maternal health, to support family workplace flexibility, to support the economic security of families, that these things were explicitly policies that would help reduce abortion. Over the last four years or so, the par- they've moved away from that. They've been afraid to even talk about the positive impacts that their policies would have on the abortion rate for political reasons to cater to certain parts of the constituency. And I think that's a major loss. I think it's a major loss that, again, when uh, when we had a Democrat running in 2016 uh, to try and uh, uh, take a position in the White House after President Obama, that 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 candidate was unwilling to say, I'm going to continue the policies of President Obama that gave us the lowest abortion rate that we've had in this country uh, since Roe v. Wade. That just that wasn't something she could bring herself to say. And again, that's for a political reason. So I think Democrats need to make some, some serious improvements. And then I think, you know, when we're talking about religious pro-lifers, and there are non-religious pro-lifers, when we're talking about religious pro-lifers, um, we need to make sure that we're entering politics uh, with the view and intent to to love our neighbors and to serve our neighbors. Uh, and uh, I think a uh, uh, 
a, a one issue litmus test uh, is is not the best way uh, to filter through those uh, those decisions that we have to make. So as, as you think around the ACA, and you obviously were <laughs> in the White House when all this is, is yeah. taking place, uh, what do you think will be um, the greatest detriment to, um, to uh, canceling this policy, to, to the dismantling of this policy in a matter of, of the conversation of faith? Well, it all depends on how, how it happens. I, I don't think it will uh, happen, though. As he said, they're, they're trying their, their darndest. But, I mean... You could look at everything from uh, the, the idea that uh, uh, insurers, if the entire ACA was stripped out, insurers would be able to once again discriminate against pre-existing conditions, including pregnancy. Uh, uh, we could talk about the, the millions of poor people who would no longer have uh, health care that they have now. I mean, it would it would be it would be profound. It would be a profound uh, change that would not only roll back. Uh, some of the improvements that were made, but it would make it um, it would make it very difficult to revisit uh, another attempt at sweeping health reform. I, I think if that were to happen, now I, I think that as the ACA has been implemented, as it's become uh, a more of a feature of people's lives, I think there's we're actually seeing from from Republicans a sort of hesitancy like. Well, I need to continue to say I'm against this, but I really don't want to. I don't want to vote on it anymore. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to actually. Uh, you know, I don't want this to actually happen, even though I'm saying uh, I do, uh, because they know the impact it would have. We need to pause to tell you about one of our presenting sponsors, Campbell University Divinity School. Since its founding more than 20 years ago, Campbell University Divinity School has been guided by a unique six-word mission statement: Christ-centered. Bible-based ministry focus. That mission statement captures our distinct integration of academic rigor, spiritual formation, and practical application. It lays the foundation for an unusual strong sense of community among a very diverse student body, drawn from many different denominations, ethnic backgrounds, age groups, along with the faculty and staff. It expresses the deep, shared commitment to our faith and willingness to engage with different points of view that characterize everything we do. We do not seek simply to inform students, rather we invite them to journey into transformation, challenging them and equipping them to develop their own understanding of what it means to be Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused. We invite you to learn more about us. Check out our degrees, concentrations, and programs. Come to one of our continuing education lectures, to Visitation Day, or to one of our regional recruiting events. Contact us to schedule an individual visit. Call one of our faculty to lead a retreat or Bible study or to wrestle with difficult issues. You can reach us online at divinity.campbell.edu. We look forward to hearing from you. All right, we're back in our second half of our conversation with Michael Ware, the former faith advisor to President Barack Obama and author of Reclaiming Hope. So, Michael, in, in your book, you spoke about uh, the evolution of President Obama's theology uh, throughout his administration. Um, but, but what about you? Um, how did your time in the White House transform your faith journey? Well, you know, it wasn't um, it wasn't really so much sort of uh, this happened in the White House and so my faith changed. Um, a, a couple things. One, working in the White House imposed, uh, let's just say, a structure to my life that was pretty um, demanding. And so... 
I think when I first went to the White House, I figured, you know, this is going to be really difficult to keep up um, spiritual life, keep up spiritual discipline, just because I'm going to be so busy. But what ended up happening is my life was so structured that I knew that I had to fit in. I knew that I had to actually plan on prayer and reading scripture and spending time with God uh, or else it wouldn't get done. Uh, and so actually I experienced, you know, pretty significant spiritual flourishing during my time there. I was in the word more than I had ever been in my life, really. Um, the other thing that uh, impacted me was, well, actually two more things. Uh, second, I'd say um, my job was uh, in the White House faith-based office. And so, you know, it wasn't like I was in the communications office or my job every day was to work with and support religious leaders and people around the country. So uh, I'd have, you know, meetings with pastors every single day. And so that kind of um, uh, engagement and the friendships that came out of that were really spiritually enriching. And then just third is um, I had a lot of people who were praying for me and loving on me and, and providing resources. Um, one one leader sent to our office a copy of Dallas Willard's uh, The Divine Conspiracy, and I just kind of eyed it on the bookshelf for six months, nine months, and for some reason finally decided to pick it up. And um, that book changed my life. I read that book probably in my first year in the White House, and it was almost like a second spiritual awakening for me. And um, Dallas's insistence um, uh, that eternal life is it starts now, not just far off after sort of physical death, but that we're actually invited into kingdom living now um, was was and continues to be um, a grounding sentiment and idea and reality of my life. Hmm. Um, well, politics, uh, politics will rip your heart out. It'll throw it on the ground. It'll spit on it, step on it a few times, and then ask you to put it back in and cast a vote. So, so how did you keep from becoming cynical in your faith journey during that time? Yeah, well, first I'd return to the fact that, um, you know, I really left the White House more optimistic than I was when I came in. And a big part, a uh, big reason for that was so much of my time was spent, again, working with religious communities, seeing what humble people of faith were doing on the ground in their communities, you know, every day. And so uh, that, that was my lens for politics. Now, yes, we had to deal with controversies. I was, uh, uh, when I was on the election campaign, you know, that's a very, uh, uh, all kind of sweet things that happen, but when you're on a campaign, your job is to, uh, is to elect your candidate, and so that, that was a bit of a different role, but really overall, um, I was uh, really just uh, encouraged. Now, I saw, one of the reasons why I wrote Reclaiming Hope is I saw some trends developing that concerned me, uh, both among politicians, but really among the people, among citizens, what they were demanding of their politicians, what they were expecting from their politics. And so I think there's, uh, I feel vindicated in those concerns. Uh, I, and I think that um, we need to really be thinking about um, what kind of investment we want to make in our politics and what we want to expect from our politics. If we get some of the civic character questions right, then we'll be on a good track. 
What would you celebrate most um, about the faith shifts that took place during your time in the White House? Mm. What, what, do you, what do you mean oh, by um, that? Maybe what, what was an apex moment, uh, you know, kind of a, a theological insight, uh, an aha spiritual moment for you? Huh. Uh, I love telling this, uh, this story. Um, yeah, uh, probably the most um, impactful spiritual moment I had at the White House um, there's a there's a singer by the name of Sarah Groves, um, and I had met her a few months earlier at a conference. She was just a wonderful artist, won Dove Awards. She's just an incredible songwriter as well. She wrote this uh, she wrote this uh, this sort of remake, this retooling of "Great Is Thy Faithfulness" in a song she wrote called "He's Always Been Faithful to Me." And I heard her perform this song, and I thought. Uh, we need to have her at the White House. And so uh, a few months later, the president uh, held his Easter prayer breakfast, which was a time for Christian leaders to gather and celebrate Easter in the uh, East Room of the White House. And we were able to have Sarah there, and she didn't really tell me, you know, what she was planning other than the fact that I I did ask her to sing that song, and, you know, she agreed because we invited her. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So that helped. Um, she plays that song, and it's you know it's a very moving song for me personally and for others. But uh, when she finishes it, she uh, sort of looks to the president and to others in the audience. And I just want to be clear: the audience here is cabinet secretaries, it's senior White House staffers, it's heads of denominations, it's head of uh, religious social service organizations. I mean, it's really the government, governmental, and Christian leadership of the country is all in this room. Um, she looks out to the audience and, and says, I wonder if uh, you all would sing Great Is Thy Faithfulness with me. And so the president stands up, uh, you know, Secretary of Defense stands up, you know, all the religious leaders stand up, and uh, you have, you know, folks in that room who whose entire denominations are a result of bitter divisions among them and disagreements among them all singing Great Is Thy Faithfulness together, um, worshiping with one another. Uh, and, you know, I would often think, the president would talk about, especially at he, as he had to face uh, decisions of war and peace and uh, use of military uh, force, that he would uh, walk through the east part of the White House. And there's a portrait of a Lincoln there that he said he would sometimes stand in front of. Well, that portrait is just... Uh, uh, just by where we were doing that and um, you know as a Christian I, I, I just think uh, you know so, so, a, a kind of anointing happened in the East Room that's obviously uh, separate from politics there, there were there was worship in that room and to think that those prayers echoed um, in a way that provided comfort and wisdom to the president um, as he was making major decisions um, it was just a very touching moment for me for those joining us on Facebook, we're having a conversation with Michael Ware, former White House advisor to Barack Obama, as well as the author of Reclaiming Hope. Um, CNN's Vance Jones called Trump's election a white lashing against uh, Obama's election. Uh, so this is clearly a divisive time in American politics. Yeah. Um, how, do we, how do we wade through this cesspool of divisiveness? <laughs> uh, wow. 
<laughs> well, there there is a lot there. Um, I, I spoke this morning about, and there, there's so much to be said here, but uh, I shared this morning, and it's included uh, in the new afterword to Reclaiming Hope. Um, so my, the book originally came out three days before the inauguration, and so it it foretells, and, and, and you can read the original book and see a lot of the threads that led to where we are now, but there are, the original book has no uh, explicit... Uh, discussion of Trump. The afterword has, uh, or the uh, the paperback version has a new afterword. Um, and one idea I put in there, uh, I, I was reading Galatians, and Galatians is this, you know, incredible letter of Paul's writing to a community that uh, was formed around his his teachings and around the gospel. But by the time Paul was writing. Uh, there were false teachers that were trying to make their way and, and gain influence within the community. There was all kinds of sin and parochial motives. Um, really, it was Paul is writing Galatians into an atmosphere of polarization. I mean, that's the best way to describe it. Um, and you would think that like the most practical thing to say to a polarized community would be um, some kind of a distribution of power, some sort of fair distribution of power. You know, you guys can have the, uh, uh, you, you guys can control how the community worships on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and the other side can control another, you know, like, or, you know, a segment, you guys uh, better stay in this area and you guys better stay in that area. And instead, Paul writes to them and he tells them the most extraordinary thing. He tells them to bear another's uh, bear one another's burdens, uh, for in this way uh, you will share the love of Christ. Um, it is the exact opposite of everything that polarization promotes in us. To be able to um, to to look at those who have different priorities than us, who may look at politics differently, who may have different interests, and without regard to uh, power or status um, without giving up our own convictions, to be able to say, um, I'm going to bear your burden in this. What, what, what that means concretely in, in our current political context is we currently have uh, politicians who think that they only need to be accountable in elected office to those who put them there. Now, what that means is uh, if you're in uh, a congressional district, for instance, that is 30% Afri African American or 20% African American, but you're represented by uh, by a, a white Republican, uh, and that Republican knows uh, as long as he turns out enough of his base, uh, even if that 20% votes entirely the same way, he doesn't have to care about him. Uh, the exact opposite also happens. We have uh, cities represented by uh, Democrats who, uh, even if they have significant evangelical populations, even if they have significant, you know, Republican po uh, populations, they know my seat is secure as long as I turn out people from this, these demographics with these views. And so what we have is people in elected office who never even have to uh, address the arguments of, of the people that they're claiming to serve. And so we have this uh, very undemocratic outcome in our democratic system. The only way to break through that that I see uh, within our current structure, there are all sorts of uh, discussions now about ways of reforming our 
represent, uh, uh, our system of representation. But in the system that we have now, the only way to break through that is if uh, those who have access to power are willing to use it not just to give voice to their own interests and arguments, but if they're actually willing to say, well, look, uh, I'm not sure if I see completely eye to eye with my brother or sister on, on this issue, uh, but they've thought this out and they have an argument and I demand that you address their argument. So I'm gonna use five minutes of my 15 minute meeting with this congressperson. I'm gonna uh, show up at the town hall and if my issue has been addressed, I'm gonna ask a question that I know that my, uh, my, my, my neighbor who has to work a night shift can't be here to ask. And, and we actually have to raise these things to the surface so that our politicians feel like they can't, they can't just appease us because we happen to have the power in our districts, our, our politics happen to be in favor with them. They can't just appease us um, and ignore our brothers and sisters who are dealing with a whole different set of substantive uh, issues that in reality are all of our responsibility. So, so th there's a lot about how we wade through <laughs> the cesspool of our politics. I think that's a good term. But if Christians can uh, say, look, we find our security in Christ, so we don't need to find uh, we don't need to find our identity in politics. We don't need to find our ultimate security in politics. And then we're freed up to actually enter into politics in a way that's edifying for our neighbors, even for those who disagree with us politically. And that will do a lot to, uh, to, to really drain the swamp, if you'll allow me to, to steal a <laughs> phrase. I'm always fascinated by uh, Paul and Galatians because we get these beautiful phrases like bear each other's burdens, and then he also says things like, I wish they'd go and fully emasculate themselves. So, oh, the Apostle Paul. Always keeping us yeah, on our toes. Always keeping us on our toes. <laughs> um, we had a, a, a Facebook uh, follower uh, who asked a question. And um, uh, questions around uh, President Obama was historic on uh, working with those who didn't see eye to eye with him. You, you quote this in the book. Um, so how do we find common space with those we don't see eye to eye with? Hmm. Um, well, I think... The church is one of the last institutions that uh, is consistently putting people of different political views in the same church. Now, not every church. Some churches are, have some uh, uh, are, are uh, uh, politically uh, homogeneous, but uh, but uh, there are a lot of churches that, even if folks are thinking differently about politics, watching different cable news shows, they still worship together. I attend a church like that. I know CBF ha has, a, has a lot of uh, politically diverse churches. And so the, the, the church being able to prioritize uh, a greater identity and yet still be willing to host conversations and facilitate discussion around politics can be an incredibly uh, healing thing. I think that that's powerful. And, and then I just point to, um, so, so much of our politics right now is concentrated on emphasizing division and focusing on issues where there's stark conflict. Um, when there are issues that are maybe you know less uh, sexy, less controversial, uh, but that are you know close to the flourishing of our communities, that we can urge politicians to not just. Uh, pay attention to, but actually lift up more in our political process. So how, how can we, um, and, and then the last thing I'd say is w we need to really, without cynicism, um, promote those who are doing good work in this area. So there was a criminal justice reform bill 
that just passed uh, uh, just passed the House, uh, where a Republican from Georgia, I believe, and uh, um, uh, Hakeem Jeffries from uh, New York uh, co-sponsored the bill, uh, and it got passed. This in this environment to be able to pass a criminal justice reform bill on a bipartisan basis is a beautiful thing that more people should be talking about. Um, that some of the DC players don't want you to talk about because they want you to believe that the other side is evil and can never do anything good. Uh, but we need to be able to lift up uh, and encourage and promote uh, when politicians are actually showing leadership and breaking through decision, uh, breaking through division, as opposed to being constantly cynical, as opposed to always being skeptical. Uh, Dallas Willard has this line. He says, he says. Uh, uh, and this is in a theological context, but I think it's applicable here. He'd say, you know, if, if you're going to doubt your beliefs, uh, make sure uh, that you uh, believe your doubts, and make sure that you believe your beliefs and doubt your doubts, um, which I think is something that, that we could really use in our politics right now. We have a whole lot of people who know what they're opposed to, but they don't know, they don't know what they're for. <laughs> This next question from a Facebook listener, I'm just going to have to skip over because they ask, your book is entitled Reclaiming Hope. What kind of hope are you calling us towards? So read the book uh, <laughs> and you'll, <laughs> you'll learn that. Um, but you, you do, uh, you experience firsthand the greatness and bitter disappointment that politics bring. And you wrote, I can say without equivocation that politics is not where you want to place your hope. People who place their hope in politics are idealists who become cynics and there is rarely a resting stop on that journey. Um, what, what firmer ground do those that engage in politics need to stand than politics itself? Yeah, this is, it's a gospel. Uh, the safest place for Christians to engage in politics is not with their feet planted in, in politics, but with their feet planted in the gospel. And when your feet are planted there, that opens you up. When your hope is in the gospel, then you're freed up to hope for a whole range of wonderful things. But it's when we misplace our hope in these secondary, penultimate things that we ultimately end up disappointed. I talk about this a, a great deal in my book. I, th I think it's part of the cultural crisis we're in now, that we, we've actually reached something of uh, a new low or a new sort of reckoning with the fact that we've had misplaced hopes for too long that are not satisfying us, but we just kind of don't know what to, don't know what to do. Where uh, Parker Palmer refers to our politics as a politics of the brokenhearted, and I think that's incredibly apt. And uh, I think if we if we viewed our political enemies as, uh, uh, and I use that with quotes, our political enemies as people with broken hearts, um, I, I think that will help us uh, engage in a much healthier way, as opposed to viewing them as you know, inherently evil and, you know, all, all this sort of hyped up rhetoric that we end up, uh, end up uh, falling, falling prey to. You said that uh, we shouldn't place our faith in politics, but you wrote that uh, we benefit greatly from people of hope bringing it into the public square. Will you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a... Um, People who are not going to politics to get their spiritual needs met can actually enter politics um, in a way that's healthy uh, and, it, and uh, in a way that addresses politics for what it is, uh, what it actually is, what it's actually to be used for. One of the reasons our, our politics has become so corrosive lately is you have a whole 
bunch of people going to politics for things that politics was never suited to meet or fill. Or, uh, and, and so, yes, when people can carry real hope with them into politics, then, like I said before, then they're not going to politics out of a sense of scarcity, out of a sense of insecurity. They're, they're actually, they have their needs met elsewhere, and so they're in, go, able to go into politics wondering, how can my neighbor's meet, needs be met? H how can I make sure that I'm using politics to love my neighbor and for our communities flourishing? Uh, and, and when that doesn't happen, then you have people going into politics wondering, how can I get mine? Uh, how can my team win? Uh, how can I make sure the other team loses? Uh, and, and you get into a really um, get into a really awful uh, routine when when that happens. Uh, the founding fathers were very concerned about uh, factionalism, and and their concerns are uh, 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 have a lot of credence today. You said that the holistic pursuit of justice and the well-being of our neighbor is inconceivable without political involvement. So for you, what is the pursuit of justice? Mm. Well, you know, par part of what I'm referring to in the book there is, um, you know, uh, I believe private acts of charity are important, essential. Part of what makes America such a vibrant place are these mediating institutions are these civic institutions that um, uh, that were not entirely reliant on government for good deeds for uh, for uh, helping people in dire straits we have a really thriving social sector and yet I think sometimes Christians can um, say well let's take international aid for instance well you know um, the way that I'm contributing to uh, international aid efforts is I sponsor a child through World Vision, which is wonderful. Um, uh, the problem is, is that uh, your sponsorship of a child through World Vision is being uh, would be undermined, uh, and not just undermined, but completely. Uh, the benefit of your sponsorship would be completely overturned, like bajillion times over sorry that's not the most wonky th uh, <laughs> term to say uh, how if, many zeros are yeah, exactly <laughs> if, if the government uh, drastically cuts foreign aid yeah. world world vision doesn't just rely on private donations they rely on partnerships with government and so if you say that you care about um, uh, the global four uh, then yes private charity should be a part of that what you're doing with your local church should be a part of that but that doesn't negate the powerful roles that policymaking has for the for the issues you care about, and all of that has to be a part of your the way we consider things. So that's why I say that holistic pursuit of justice has to include yes, private acts of charity, but also uh, public thinking and, and political engagement and thinking about how uh, the policies you support and the. Uh, the politicians you support, what, what policies they'll uh, be advancing, how that affects the, the issues you care about. Well, for those who haven't, go out and buy Reclaiming Hope by Michael Ware. Uh, Michael, thank you for um, taking the time out to uh, engage CBF uh, today. Uh, thank you for, uh, more importantly, uh, the vulnerability you've placed yourself in by writing this book. Um, what it was like serving God while serving, serving the highest office 
uh, in the land. So thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for your theological convictions. Uh, and thank you for the conversation tonight. Thank you so much. Well, this podcast interview is brought to you by Fuller Seminary. Build your own learning pathway through Fuller's flexible six-course certificate of Christian studies. Choose courses that fit your needs, such as recovering ministry or pastoral care and abuse. Study without leaving your ministry context or committing to long-term degree programs. Plus, beginning in 2018, automatically receive a Grace Fuller Scholarship, which reduces the price of tuition by one-third. Visit fuller.edu backslash Grace Fuller Scholarship for more information. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 